Lowe's knows you'll do it right to save on what you need to make stylish updates to your kitchen and bathroom. We do it right, too, with savings on the Delta Valdosta Kitchen and Bath Collection. Featuring faucets and accessories with Spot Shield technology so you don't have to worry about water spots and stains. And for three days only, all new and existing Lowe's credit card holders get 10% off purchases made with your Lowe's card. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Credit offer valid 315 to 317. Subject to credit approval cannot be combined with other credit offers. Exclusions apply. U.S. only. Manor Hill Celtic are blazing to Munster glory here. The ball is passed out to the right wing. Up the line it goes. It's across to the centre and ah, that's unbelievable. The ball hits the back of the net. That's goal number five and it's all over. May 1970. The place, Market Field Limerick. Waterford schoolboy soccer team and Manor Hill Celtic take on St. Mungrets of Limerick in the Irish Schools Championship, the Easter Cup. It ends here on a final score of 5-0. Manor Celtic go through to the semi-final of the All-Ireland Easter Cup. The Waterford boys are on their way. But they weren't. The bus to take team and supporters to the semi-finals was set to leave Barrack Street at 2 o'clock the following Saturday. That bus never left. Former Mount Sign pupil Noel Kelly takes up the story. There was a competition, an inter-schools competition at the time uh, called the Easter Cup. This was a competition which was played for by the schools in Waterford City. Uh, it was an, an, kind of an, inf an informal or an unofficial soccer competition um, that didn't have really any of the authority of the school, certainly in Mount Sinai, to be involved in. But it was organised by students themselves and matches were played over the Easter holidays, hence the name, the Easter Cup. Um, and that had been played for, for a few years during the late 60s, as I remember it. Uh, then at one stage, the winners of that competition were allowed to go forward into an All-Ireland, uh, a Munster and then an All-Ireland competition. Now, that had been in place on a formal basis. There were schools in Ireland, particularly in Dublin, I think in Cork, and certainly Summerhill and Sligo, uh, who had played soccer formally as part of their curriculum and there wasn't any difficulty for them. But um, there was no opportunity for Mount Sinai uh, to be part of it because it just wasn't recognised as an official game of the school and that was it. Things were going to come to a crunch at some stage. And the crunch came, I think, when the team qualified out of Waterford, out of the Waterford region, in, in, into to Munster and then on to the, the All-Ireland Finals. And in order to, to play the game, they had to use the official name of the school. It was known, it was the Mount, Mount Science School, but the name couldn't be used. And in fact, this name Manor Hill Celtic was the kind of the, the flag of convenience, if you like, that, that, was, that was used by the team. But in order to get to the, to the final stages of the competition, the official school name had to be used. Now, permission had to be got from the school, from the brothers for that, and that permission wasn't given. And following from that then, the famous strike or the walkout then resulted. My name is Nicky Den, and I played for Mount Sinai in the 1970. We're about one net, we're out of step anyway. That's the first thing because there's tradition in the hurling. 
unfortunately at, the, at that stage Holland wasn't going very well and we had an awful lot of people from the local soccer clubs around and we had a very very strong team we played the uh, Eastern final was played in Osher Park and we beat De La Salle 1-0 yeah, we played Dungarvan and Dungarvan and we won very handy, I think 7-0. And we played, in the, that was the semi-final of the Munster. And then we went on to play in the Munster final and we beat Mungrets 5-0. We had always had a bus full when we, when, whenever we travelled. And we had great help from uh, Richie Elliott uh, to help with the team. And like when we had three of us running the team, Paul Hart, Larry Goff and myself. And when we were playing... Richie ran the line and made up whatever change. He was involved with Waterford at that time. With the, he was involved with the school by Waterford FC at that time had a school by section. And Richie was looking after us at that time. We were all on the school by team like with Richie. Uh, my name is Richie Elliott. I'm involved in football in Waterford like, since I was, I was a kid. And I went and played with Bohemians Football Club and I also did a lot of hurling in Mount Sinai. And when I was involved uh, in Mount Sinai, I had a great friendliness with all the Christian brothers. I loved going to school. And later on then, when I got more involved playing, playing soccer, I got involved in coaching. And I was coaching the Waterford Reserve Team at the time. And it's around that period that the Easter Cup started in Waterford. But anyhow, the, the, I think it was Nicky then and, and Larry Goff approached me to know what I managed the the Mount Sinai team in what was then a new Easter Cup competition. So I said I would. And we went along and as far as I'm aware, the lads had inquired about the name Mount Sinai and they were refused. So we went out after we played. I don't know how many teams were in the competition that time. There could have been six maybe. But to call a long story short, we won out the area of the, the war of the area of this competition. Went to Limerick and played Mungret College in Marketsfields in Limerick and beat them 5-0. And this puts us into the semi-final of the All-Ireland Cup. And at this stage, Sean Power and Joe Goulding were the people in the Warford School Boys League Committee. As far as I'm aware, they then got word from the school's association that they could not play the, in the competition any further once they got into the semi-final stages under Manor Hill Sydney. Uh, so they could not go ahead unless they had the proper correct name of the school. I was pretty much warned away very, very early on from home that this idea of a team, a soccer team, would be potential trouble. And again, I suppose as a, as a 15, 16-year-old at the time, it now, looking back, shows, I suppose, in my own case, in my own family, how the word of your mother went and that was it. But I can remember quite clearly... Um, coming down one day with my boots and gear and my mother saying, get out of that, you're not allowed. Trouble was brewing with that thing. And in fact, it did. I think in my own case, uh, my, my, my mother certainly would have been a supporter of the brothers and, and what they were trying to do. Uh, the idea of any kind of anti-authority, whether it was against the church or against the family or against parents, uh, w- would not have been accepted in, 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 in our house. So this was seen really, I suppose, as a possible threat. Um, and it's strange how a thing like soccer, like sport, was seen really as a threat to authority. And I can remember being warned off very, very early uh, not to get involved in it and to stay away. There may have been, we'd say, one or two occasions over my early years in the secondary school whereby an individual boy 
uh, had somehow tried to protest or to, to go against something that had been said. And he, or, he would have been put down immediately, either told or in some cases would have been struck or hit or slapped or whatever. And that was how any type of questioning was dealt with. It just wasn't part of uh, the relationship, if you like, between the student and, and the teacher. Both Liam Rellis and Michael O'Connor were also students in the school at the time. Obviously then, when the competition insisted that we use the school name, the National Assemblies, well, that's where the problem started. But there was a genuine feeling of, this is bullshit, you know, they've gone far enough, we've tolerated too much. You know, even at our tender age of 16 and 17, we knew what enough was enough. Mm-hmm. And we knew there was a kind of a, a line in the sand being drawn here. And if we lost this one, if, if this one was allowed to go through without any kind of protest, well then backwards we were going. And if we allowed this soccer thing to go unmarked or with no protest first, there was a line in the sand and things could actually start reversing back into the old, the old ways of the Christian brothers. I suppose it challenged the, their ethos. And soccer was things. I mean, soccer was a world game at that stage. And I think um, I understand their ethos was to promote all things Irish. And I would support it. But I actually believe they could have embraced other traditions and creeds as well. Oh, instinctively I supported it. I thought it was fantastic. The attitude of the school management, in my opinion, was wrong. This was a fantastic uh, achievement for the, the pupils to achieve uh, the success on the soccer field. I, it doesn't matter where they achieve uh, success. I mean, it, isn't it better to have kids playing soccer and not being standing around the corner or being involved in other activities? Um, you know, from my understanding was that uh, they didn't need the permission of the school to, uh, to be involved in the earliest days of the competition, but they did fantastically well. Maybe they exceeded their own expectations, but they qualified for the final. And in order to compete, they needed the permission to use the school name and, I think, the insurance. And that's, that was the crux of the matter. Uh, the school authorities, uh, from memory, refused to give that. And it just led to frustration and, and then the outbreak of, of the protest. I'd say it was probably the first strike by pupils in Ireland. So it was, you know, revolutionary times. When we grew up and went to school, there were certain teachers who The place of the GAA in Irish society today is strong and secure. But in 1970, Rule 27, the ban, was still in force, as broadcaster Micheál O'Murrahertig explains. There was an emphasis on nationalism and ourselves, our own. And that meant to a lot of people our own games, our own language, our own music, our own economy. That was there. So in a way, that had an influence in bringing in a ban to protect your own against the others. Maybe they feared that if there was open competition that they, they might be the losers. I'm not sure would that be the case. But then the ban then was there and players were prohibited if they were members of the Gaelic Athletic Association from playing foreign games. Now that didn't include all foreign games. It included soccer, rugby and cricket as far as I concerned. They were the ones... It was okay to play golf, and maybe it was okay to play tennis. They weren't considered to be big threats at the time. So that was the background to it. It was a very, very strict school, the emphasis on the Irish language and, of course, on the whole GAA culture in the school as well, too. There was a very strict authoritarian regime in place, if you like, in which um, people were expected to conform 
um, you were expected to work, work hard, do your work and get your exams. And um, that was the emphasis that was in the school, as I remember it. My memory is, and I'm, I'm moving on now through the years into kind of fifth year, which would have been around maybe 69, 70, 71, those years. There was an effort uh, to introduce Gaelic football. Um, I can remember somebody, one, one of the brothers, bringing up a bag of O'Neill's footballs. But I think the experiment was short-lived because not only could we not play Gaelic football, but people just kept the ball on the ground and started to play soccer in the middle of it. So I think it was an experiment really only lasted a week or two. Mm. Um, you can imagine of all those boys going up there, the, the, the ranges between skill level uh, and interest between people like uh, Pat McGrath at the time, for example, would have been a, that Danny Murphy of, of, of Rowan Moore. Outstanding hurlers, right down to fellas who couldn't even hold the hurley. <laughs> and all these guys were mixed up uh, into these teams on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, at the time, too, as I said, there became the beginnings of, of or I can remember the beginnings of, of kind of a, a staying back afterwards to play soccer afterwards. And this became a regular thing uh, on the Wednesday or the Thursday afternoon when the hurling was over. I can remember distinctly a kind of a group of us being very, very slow to get changed, waiting till the brother or brothers or teachers went off. And then the real game would start and the soccer would start up on the pitch then. And we would be there maybe till five o'clock or half past five playing soccer on the pitch. Um, at that stage, I think a lot of people had taken to soccer and more or less left. And a lot of probably gifted and very talented hurlers I think at that time maybe had just turned their back on the whole hurling GAA thing. Now, it was probably part maybe of a whole opening up otherwise, a whole 60s, a change maybe in attitudes and a change in, in, in behaviour and a whole identification maybe of hurling and the GAA with that old world of parents, of school, of the brothers, of teaching. You know, and I think soccer was the new the new way maybe of expressing that. Soccer maybe and music, pop rock culture, I suppose, that emerged at the time as well too, was seen maybe as a vehicle for for showing your resistance or showing your your individuality or something. Express yourself. Express yourself. From 1965 to 1970, things were changing in Mount Sinai too. The arrival of university-educated lay teachers, free secondary school education, the school was expanding with the influx of pupils from places like St John's Park and the Cork Road. Add to that mix the rise and success of the Waterford soccer team and the declining fortunes of Waterford hurling. It was a time ripe for change. There was a movement all over the world, I thought. You had the flower power at San Francisco or something and new outlooks and everything. And there was a big, big move to get rid of the ban. Now, it didn't go until 1971. It was there when this incident happened, but it was very, it was one of the last kicks, if you like, of, of keeping the ban. You can imagine in a school, an all-male boys' school, all us fellas were looking for some way maybe of saying, you know, how can I show this or how can I demonstrate this or how can I show that I'm, I'm different or how can we rebel, if you like. And I think that was part of it. Now, being in a very, very conservative, strict authoritarian school, you can imagine there was very, very little chance or opportunity for that. Till perhaps uh, you had individual teachers who, because of their teaching style or because of their personalities or because of their background, 
allowed, if you like, some of this individuality. Sean Crow, who was a teacher of English in the school, is the most obvious one to, one to mention. Um, his style of teaching, the breadth, if you like, of um, the texts, the books, the writers that he mentioned, couldn't but influence young minds, 15, 16-year-old boys, at the time, maybe who was, who was looking for some way of expressing their individuality, their personality, whatever. Sean Crow was one of those new university-educated teachers to arrive at the school. I actually started in 1965, and uh, I remember it. I remember it well because I was thrown in at the deep end, uh, an honours sixth-year class, not fifth-year. So I had to take over from somebody else. Now. Uh, they were they were very new to me, obviously. hadn't seen them before, and of course I was new to them. But I was very lucky in one way. They were a brilliant class, as good as I ever had. So they did a lot for my career in the sense that their results were superb, and that got me off to a good start, so I owe them that. Lee Murphy, poet and former pupil. It was a change, a complete change. I remember Sean Crow opening up his daily newspaper, his newspaper of choice, and it was then the Manchester Guardian. And suddenly there was a man who wasn't reading the Irish press. And he was talking about Théard de Chardin, who was a French uh, Catholic uh, biologist and dealing with the origin of life and everything else. And telling his students about Le Comte de Noy because they weren't the things. And you suddenly realised, here's a man who's been to university, who's had an education and... He's teaching us English and you suddenly realise, yes, that there's poetry, there is T.S. Eliot. And even though people might have wondered why we were learning a poem like The Wasteland or stuff like that. But it stays in your mind. And in the room, the women, the women come and go and talk of Michelangelo. The rhyme stays in your mind. And some of the ideas that I had been born in a time of war, I was born in 48. The war was just over. There was an emergency in Ireland. There were poverty poor and difficult times and we were poor and difficult children growing up. I got a scholarship to Mount Sain, yeah, a corporation scholarship to Mount Sain, and I would, I would be grateful to the corporation for that and I would be grateful for the forward thinking. But the world was changing. The, the, the perceived certainties of being Catholic, being Irish, being Skull and Gaelic and embracing the ideals and the history of the past rapidly changing I mean my hair was long and I mean the phrase being gruagok being hairy uh, was a problem and you would be told uh, you know get your hair baragruga and the sign said long haired freaky people need not apply so I took my hair up under my hat and I went in to ask him why he said you look like a fine upstanding young man I think you do we did get a good peripheral education and we did begin to read I clearly remember being in a retreat sitting in the grounds of Mount Sinai, supposed to be praying and getting my soul ready to go out into the real world and a young man whom I still know reported me because in the Bible that I was reading I had Dr. No by Ian Fleming was the first of the pan paperbacks and on the cover was Ursula Andress in a bikini with a knife in the bikini and he reported me because he was feeling very holy and my father was sent for etc 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 from the time I started Mount Sinai until I finished the leaving cert uh, the principal then was a man by the name of S.P. O'Dougan Brother Duggan he was a strict man but he was fair but he was also a strict disciplinarian 
and he actually taught through fear. We were all afraid of him. I have no hesitation in saying that. And then you had, uh, there was a new teacher by the name of Sean Crow arrived and his arrival caused a bit of a stir because he was perceived as being different. He was modern and progressive. He encouraged debate about the issues at the time and he treated the senior pupils in particular with respect and also as adults. You know, you could look, make eye contact with them, you could talk to them, but he was also a brilliant teacher. Uh, there's one memory I have of Sean. He attempted to start a library in the school and he encouraged all the pupils to donate a book to the new proposed library. But the initiative was soon stopped by the powers that be, but the reasons were never revealed. I remember walking into this classroom with these fine big students, you know, leaving cert students, and their heads bowed as you walked in the door. You know, the discipline was so powerful at the time, and uh, possibly too strong. But then, as I say, I think we were coming out of, of an era, you know, where... Uh, there was a lot of corporal punishment and sometimes uh, overuse of corporal punishment and guys just had to toe the line or else. So there there was that, you know. But yeah, Danny Burke then came in and he had us all listening to Bob Dylan in his English classes. He had us all walking around uh, the streets of Warford drawing the historic and built heritage of the city as part of geography classes. You know? I mean, the Christian brothers, you know, their power was being slowly, slowly undermined and broken by the late teachers they brought in and by the emergence of parents who were a bit more liberal in understanding about the, the expression of their students and sons and daughters. Summer of Love was about to come, it was about to happen. Now maybe we had different versions of what the Summer of Love was going to be. Uh, when you would have, say, Christian brothers telling you that on your summer holidays, and the great, famous and infamous Brother Duggan would have told people that when the summer holidays came, it was important to keep praying, to go to Mass, and to keep your hands out of your pockets. There was a teacher called Danny Burke, who arrived, I think, when we would have been in fifth year. He was a geography teacher, I think, and... Um, I can remember quite clearly <laughs> the first day he arrived into the class, he said that he was no longer going to teach in the old traditional style. Uh, he wanted the classroom to become a place of debate, a place of questioning, a place of new ideas. And to walk into a school like Mount Sinai and to announce that to a group of 15, 16-year-olds who weren't allowed to play soccer even, uh, I mean, in retrospect, he, it was a marvellous thing to do. Years ahead of his time as regards the whole idea of teaching and the whole idea of education. However, it was a it was a clash really of cultures, and the classroom, the geography classroom, did become you know this place of of, of debate. Uh, he set these topics for debate. Um, he 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 opened up his own library, brought all his own books you know on reading literature, sociology, on psychology, and human behavior. All these sorts of things were 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 laid open for us to read. The sort of of um, reading material that you know an ordinary working class boy like myself wouldn't have ever seen before um, was um, allowed in class, and uh, you can imagine very very soon this started to cause trouble in the place. Allowing you know a wind like that to blow through <laughs> an institution like that um, so dramatically was inevitably going to lead to some sort of demonstration of some sort or other. Now, 
I, I don't think that he was instrumental in it, but certainly I think it may have fed into the whole idea of, well, you know, why don't we make some kind of a statement? Or surely we should be able to stand up for ourselves. That whole notion of expressing yourself, that whole notion of going against authority was bubbling, I think, maybe under the surface. Along with sport, this newfound freedom of expression also came through the pen of Lee Murphy. It says Brother Duggan, after the style of the Irish, rich in time's wisdom, expert on the follies of boyhood, knowledge was imparted. Could we have been so blind, unkind, to one who knew us better? Freedom was defined as the boundaries of good, such was the labyrinth as schoolboy became man. Wise on national wisdom, national in the face of an invasion of the wind, gangrened importations amputated, gaudy poses of youth abrogated, under his guidance a new school drew itself up, regenerated. I was aware from my education at Mount Sinai that Oliver St. John Gogarty had written a poem in praise of Dublin and the soldiers coming back from the war but when you read down the side of it it said the whores will be busy tonight and I just wrote it backwards that Duggan was a fucker This is the end Beautiful friend This is the end My only friend They were young men at a rebel stage I mean I think we've all gone through it they're, they're saying I'm an individual and, you know, I'm breaking out in the world and I have something to say. And uh, of course, that's what it was, yes. Entering the 1970s, Mount Sinai was on the cusp of change and soccer had a role to play. This is the year, like, the, the glory years, as they call them now, like, you know, the, the, the great war for teams winning leagues and playing in European Cups. So naturally enough, like, every kid in Waterford uh, wanted to wanted to play soccer, and I was running the Warford reserve team. I didn't bring young fellas into the reserve team. I brought a schoolboy panel up there to prepare them for the reserve team when they came to seventeen or eighteen. You know, and you had no problem getting youngsters uh, to come up and train with you, even though they were playing with the clubs. They wanted to train the coach league because on another occasion they'd be mixing with the with the Alfie Hayes and the John O'Neills and, and and so on again. Like. The big thing for kids at that time, like you know, so football was was huge at that time. League of Ireland football was huge here at that time, and you have to remember going back to the the, the early sixties, like and, and the late fifties, early sixties, when you had the Philly Grimes and the Frankie Wilshers and and, and Tom Cheeses and and uh, Martin Og Morrissey's and Ned Power and and all those players, like, and, and but that that they had faded a bit then that period. Now when that hold was at its peak at that time. League of Ireland football was at its knees in the early 60s. They were actually nearly out of football here. Uh, and then the hurling seemed to, to, to suffer a little bit then when all those great players retired. You know, it was, it was tough times to, uh, in Mount Sinai where we were at Grail School before Grail Schools were ever invented. We were the, uh, the original. I, I felt we were done down and that, that was it. And there were probably powers to be one and out the day and I kind of knew who they were. I would say one of the things that affected maybe the decision in Waterford in 69, you say, 
It was Mount Zion. From the Christian Brothers' point of view, there's a great significance with Mount Zion. They were always great supporters of hurling. They wanted hurling above anything else. Waterford, at the time, they had won two All-Irelands, maybe, but only two. And then Pat Fanning, a famous Mount Zion man, involved in the GA as a player, as an administrator, all his life. He was then the president. And maybe if he hadn't been president in time, there might be uh, a softer attitude from the school. I thought we were very, very good. We thought we had a chance of winning it out, the whole competition out. That was being All-Ireland champions. And if you didn't think like that, there was no point in being in it. So we thought we had a very, very good chance. And the big thing with us was to get the name, but we just couldn't get the name. We got the school by league involved. They acted on our behalf, saw the brothers and look for the information, trying to persuade the brother to give the, the name of the school. I think they went two or three times to the, said like after we won the semi-final in Limerick that if we didn't get the school name, we were going to be thrown out of the competition. And uh, they tried to get the name then for the next fortnight. They worked very hard to try and get the name, but they failed. I was hoping that we'd get the name, but I think deep down I always knew that we wouldn't get it. With the principal, I must, must say I never spoke to the man after. We had, say, four or five very good players, which would be as good as what you were going to meet. Now, Summerhill, I think, would have been the favourites. But the teams we met in this area, like, we would have been too strong for them, like, you know. Now, at, at this stage, we had raised money to go to Limerick. Factories in town were very good. Warford Crystal were good. I was in the National Board of Papers at the time. Clover Meats, the Foundry. All those people, ACEC, like, they were all big into the factory competitions at that time as well. And a lot of their kids would have been going to Mount Sinai, or relations of theirs. So we had no problem raising the money for the bus and for food and all that kind of thing. And the same thing happened for the semi-final. We were to play Summerhill Celtic in Athlone in the semi-final. And we had clicked the money again and so on and so on. Then the bombshell came, you can't play until you get a proper name. So Sean Powell and myself and Joe Goulding went to Mount Sinai to talk to the Christian brothers, the, 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 the head man up there. And he, his answer was like, this is, a, this is a hurling school, this is a, a GA school, like, and we don't have any uh, soccer teams here. There was no argument with that. Like, we, we were appealing to his better nature, but I think we went back to him two or three times because it was getting closer and closer to the, the time when we had to travel. The, the bottom line came, the, the answer was no. I felt, and Sean, I think, and Joe felt that he was only giving us the instructions that he was given. That was the feeling we got. Rightly or wrongly, that's the impression we got. You know? So it, it came down to, uh, we were to go on Saturday morning up that lawn. Everything was organised. And up to Thursday night, Friday morning, Sean and, and Joe were, were in, in touch with the uh, Schools Association. And it came to the deadline and that was it. So I had to pull the plug and give Summerhill a walk over. Christian Brothers were nearly always strongly Gaelic and uh, possibly the influence of Pat Fanning, who was a very, very respected figure, put in a lot of work. He was a great orator. And strangely, it was he presided over the meeting that abolished the ban in Belfast, but he handled it superbly. It was the decision of the people. It was obvious to everyone it wouldn't have been his personal decision, but the association has voted to abolish the ban. I will go by that. I will not question their right to do so. There was a big gathering people saying the word spread the boys are out of the league it's disgraceful 
So we were standing at the barracks talking and somebody said, we're not going in. So the next thing, there was 40 or 50 fellas sitting with a beautiful sunny day, sitting down <laughs> outside of the barracks, unknown. I was just told, Davy, I always remember Davy Foley telling me, Nicky, sit down there. The boys are looking after the rest of us. So we were to sit down. So we're, some of us were blamed for starting it and organising it. There was no organising on the strike. That, that was the beauty of it. Because half the people that were playing soccer at the time were in school, who probably didn't come out uh, to have their lunch out or to go to the shop. I went up to my grandmother's and I, I was waiting for we were waiting for word. And I know three or four lads like Pat O'Reilly, Pat Lee, they were locked in the school, they wouldn't leave them out. They wanted to come out at the time, so. Father Nicky came down and... Uh, Leo Dunn came up from the paper to ask us to go in and that we'd made our point and Father Nicky was a great soccer man he was involved with South End all his life and uh, he he tried to talk us in but there was no one budging like we were we, felt, we told Father Nicky we were hard done by and he I don't know did he agree at the time but and years later he told me you were hard done by he said like maybe I couldn't admit it at the time like, you know. they, were, they were adamant the people said well, we're staying here at four o'clock and that was it now they, they kind of made a promise to him that they wouldn't start it again on the following day people were wondering then then the girls schools heard about it so they, there were girls coming down uh, from the presentation and coming over from the mercy so we had a great collection of people around a girl actually told me that she remembers being the day of the strike and they were told in the presentation it was a terrible thing that them boys are after doing. So, <laughs> that's the perspective from the girl's point of view. Well, I felt very frustrated because, to me, you were talking about a bunch of school kids wanting to play sport. That, that, was, my, that was my take on it. These kids are doing no harm to anybody. They're playing sport, which they enjoy. If they didn't enjoy playing the soccer, they wouldn't have entered the team in the first place. But the kids were very, very frustrated. Naturally, you know, they were 15-year-olds or whatever they were. And the first I heard, I got a phone call and work saying, hey, Mount Sinai are on strike. When I heard Mount Sinai on strike, I said, what's it got to do with me? Like, you know, I, I never associated a strike in Mount Sinai with the soccer team. I, I was thinking on a different... I was thinking maybe there's a strike with teachers or there's something going on up there. And then... It's the team that you're coaching. They're out there up in Barracks on strike. They won't go to school. I asked my boss for an hour off. It's a Friday afternoon. This is about half past two or three o'clock. So I went in and, and uh, I, I, I spoke to some of the lads in there and they were very adamant. They were very adamant. They weren't going back into school. I remember now, uh, some of these lads were being given up for leaving Saturday. Of course, by the time all this was being discussed, that the school time was over anyhow. Like, just got up to four o'clock or whatever time anyhow. So... The whole thing fizzled out anyhow and was thrown out of the competition and that was it. There certainly was a move to bring about change. I think it was a more a northern thing than a rural thing. In different places where sports were available of all types. And people when they're young, they're naturally anxious to try their hand at anything and everything. See, would I be good at that? Would I be good at the other one? Could I combine both? That mood was there. And the ban, even though it existed, was being broken regularly all over the country. Local soccer people uh, would have been thinking like me, like, like, what harm are the kids doing? They want to play a soccer match, you know. They're not doing anybody any harm. They're not skiving off from school, like, you know. They're, they're, everything is, uh, and it's an organised thing. Like, they're not doing it on their own. They have a responsible uh, junior school by league committee behind them, like, you know. And, uh, and then... The, the two local writers, uh, 
both them are dead now, God, we go to Leo Dunn and Michael Brown and the Monster. They began to uh, get get involved and ask, like, well, what's going on here? Like, you know, what's the story? What's the background? I was in work and I got the girl rang me down and said, there's someone seeing the reception. So I went up and uh, who was sitting down here? Bill O'Hurley. And Bill O'Hurley was doing a, a programme, I think it was seven days, but I can't be sure again. Something on the prime time that time, I think. And he introduced himself and said he, he had heard about it and they had read about it. Because I think some of the national papers got to tell him. He, he was asking me about it, what happened. He said, I have one side of the story. He said, I'd like to get the, the school side of it. So I told him basically what happened that uh, we played on the Manor Hill Celtic, which we weren't allowed to do then once we got to the semi finals. So he says to me, uh, would you mind if I come down with a, a camera crew at some stage and, and shortly and do, do, a, do a piece on it? I said, not at all, just let me know when you're coming. And that was the last I heard of it. My only memory of it is driving back to school on a lovely summer's day and coming near two o'clock, seeing my leaving start sitting out in Barrack Street. <laughs> so I parked the car and I had a chat with them and they said, yeah, sir, we're on strike, like just like that, you know. I suppose there was a bit of bad blood, but it didn't seem that. I, I, I was rather amused, you know. Rather, I remember saying, well, I, you won't be coming in then, lads, into class, no. So I went into an empty room, but uh, I, I think my sympathies were on their side. If the, you know, I mean, education should be for the young, not for the teachers. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt if they wanted to, they should. A big part of the reason that we didn't get the name they didn't want to be seen to promote uh, a foreign game, as they called it, you know. They never took into account what people wanted. Mm-hmm. 25 years ago, I went back. My son was going to Mount Sinai, and he, had, he was in the concert. He was seven. And when we were in, sitting down, waiting for the concert to come on, like you were ever, all the other children, I'd look around, looked around, and I, lo and behold, Maradona is on the wall in the col- in, in, down in Mount Sinai. And I said to turn and said to my wife, at least we did something came out of our airstrike all them years ago. So and Brother Bearton was standing at the door. He was back as principal and he was standing at the door on the way out and I said, Hello brother, I said I said, Do you know who I am? He said, I'd never forget you. He said, How could I ever forget the blondie head? He said. The efforts that we made up to the last minute to try and make sure the game got played. And and we just failed, you know. We just couldn't break down the barrier of of getting the name changed from Manor Hill. We just, we, were, we, we reached the wall, we reached the wall, and we had to concede defeat, if you want to put it that way. Between the, the Munster final and the time we were thrown out of the competition, there was a comment appeared in the paper that the team consisted mainly of boys from Mountside. Now that was wrong. Then the person that said that made the comment knew that it was wrong because the team was all boys from Mountside. I'd say that was the main reason we were thrown out. The people in Dublin that were running the competition weren't 100% sure that this team were actually all the boys going to Mountside School. And that, that comment was to put the seed of thought in, in the heads of people that were running the competition. I can remember being at an interview uh, in the Department of Education in Marlborough Street, July maybe 1971, and being asked um, was I involved in this strike? What was my input into it? And I remember thinking to myself, 
how, how, what's the right answer to this question? That on the one hand, um, if you say that, if I said that I was, uh, would that be marked against me? Or in fact, might it be seen as some element of independence or some element of a bit of maturity? Uh, and I never found out the answer by the way to it. <laughs> I was up in Kilmac Thomas. I was doing a bit of coaching for the FEI in, in the schools. I'm probably going back um, eight, nine years ago, maybe ten years ago. And I was just finishing my, my coaching session when along comes Mount Sinai soccer team to play Kilmac in a, in a match. So I stand and I, I look for a while and one of the lads, one of the teachers, one of the team, don't know who he was, don't know his name, I got chanting to him for a bit, bit, like, you know, and I said, how was the soccer going like, like you know, and, and, uh, in the school? Oh, Grandy said, we're, we're this team, we're a useful team, and this and that and that, you know. I said, is there any problems in the school, per se, you know? No, 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 he said. And uh, I said, do you remember the, the strike we were saying? Oh, strike, he said. So it just goes to show you, as time moves on, people forget the sacrifices, you want to call him that, that other people had to make to get it from where it was then to where he was on this day up until Mac Thomas, you know? It was, in a sense, I, I think it was courageous on their part. They took a stand, mm-hmm. you know, and I admire that. Like, you know, you, don't, you didn't have to agree with them, but they, they, they did, you know, start something that they wanted. They allowed soccer, the ball to be played on the ground and so what. It's a, it's a better Ireland when there's sport for all and different sports and let people choose the ones they want and let every association do the best they can because all sports are good. All sports are good for the young people. It gives them character. It gives them um, this notion of being not alone but member of a team. You're doing it for the team. You're doing it for the parish. You're doing it for the country. the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations.